Hi, this is Beth AQ, and this is the podcast of The Glass House, a weekly radio show that airs on Triple R each Wednesday. The Glass House is a space for spoken word artists, poets, sound makers, audio storytellers, emerging cultural leaders, thinkers, writers, and anyone who celebrates story as a means of self-expression, self-representation, and community building. I hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch via Twitter at BethanyAQ or the Triple R website. Everyone in the world has gone to bed one night or another with fear or pain or loss or disappointment. And yet each of us has awakened and arisen. There is the nobleness of the human spirit. Despite it all, black and white, Asian, Spanish, Native American, pretty, plain, thin, fat, vowed or celibate, we rise. Listening to Triple R. You're in the glass house for the next hour with me. My name is Beth AQ. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos, and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. I acknowledge that we broadcast on the stolen, unceded lands of the Wandry people of the Kulin Nation. I pay respects to elders past and present and acknowledge the violent and fatal effects of the ongoing process of colonisation, both in this country and internationally. This has been a heartbreaking week with the murder of George Floyd at the hands of state-sanctioned racism and violence. And I know that a lot has been said on this, but I wanted to quote Angela Davis, Davis, who said it so eloquently that it's not enough to be quietly non-racist. Now is the time to be vocally anti-racist. And I think about this as a white person, as a white broadcaster, that one of the first steps to dismantling this white supremacy that we see taking the lives of black people the world over is to understand it and to educate ourselves. And as you might know, George Floyd is tragically one of the many black lives that have been lost to state-sanctioned violence. And if we look closer to home at this country's shameful history, we see that 432 Aboriginal people have died in police custody since the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody in 1991, which equates to more than one person a month. Um, And there's never been a single conviction over an Indigenous death in custody. 
So I am thinking about this a lot as a white person, let us not just perform allyship. Um, I've seen so many people post uh, acts of solidarity. I think it's it's a life's work to be a real ally. So let's continually educate ourselves, act and commit to these acts long after this moment quietens and remember these truths and the history in which we stand within. Let us interrogate our place in this. How are we complicit and what power will we give up? How are we backing up what we're saying with real support? Uh, And I hope that this program can be um, a small place to interrogate whiteness and also a place to learn because the time is now. Coming up on the show today, I'll be joined on the line by Gomilaroy poet and academic, sorry, Gomilaroy poet and academic Alison Whitaker, uh, who I tried to have a chat with a few weeks back, but it unfortunately cut out. So I'll be playing it for you today. Um, we were chatting about a new anthology that she has put together. It's called Firefront First Nations Poetry and Powers Today. And it's a collection that showcases many respected First Nations poets from this continent um, and some of its rising stars and that one is out through UQP and a little bit later on in the show I'll be joined by the Emerging Writers Festival Artistic Director Ruby Rose Pivot Marsh to talk all about their brand new program that launched last night. It is a program that will be taking place entirely online and there are some really amazing initiatives that they've put together to be able to adapt to this new environment. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up the Triple R website to find out how. You are listening to Triple R. My name's Beth AQ and you're in the glass house. My guest joining me on the line is Gomeroy poet and academic Alison Whitaker. She's written two award-winning poetry collections uh, being Lemons on the Chicken Wire Fence and Black Work. And she joins me today to speak about a new anthology that she's edited. It's called Firefront First Nations Poetry and Powers Today. And it's a collection that showcases many respected First Nations poets from this continent alongside some of its rising stars stars. Alison, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me, Beth Yama. Alison, in your introduction, you kind of talk about how this collection is necessarily important. It, it kind of sits alongside other incredible anthologies that have, have come before us. And I suppose with this in mind, and, you know, obviously you have finite pages uh, in the book and with so many first great First Nations poets and thinkers to draw from, what kind of informed your curatorial process? I was interested in pulling together, um, I guess, an anthology that um, acted as a collective memory of the big black uh, poetry renaissance that's happening on this continent right now. Uh, And that's not just uh, the new and emerging poets that are part of this renaissance, but actually thinking about the long uh, precedent of First Nations poetry that built up a structure making this all possible. So the collection's kind of divided into into five sections, um, documenting uh, different parts of uh, this movement and accompanied uh, with essays by uh, First Nations thinkers who guide the readers through. Mm. I'm interested, um, I suppose, talking about this renaissance of, of First Nations poetry. Why do you, well, I suppose, what do you think has kind of um, have, has caused it or, or, or do you feel like people are just 
right now really excited about it in, in a way that people weren't ready for before? Yeah, I think it's probably what you've identified. Um, on the other hand, there has always been, um, I think at least in my memory mm. and um, the intergenerational memories that I've been uh, told, uh, that there's always been a, a prominence of poetry as a First Nations practice on this continent. Um, and it's only recently that publishing attention has been directed towards it. There was a time, thinking back to Uchuru Nunakul, the, the first mm. um, Aboriginal woman to have a published poetry collection, uh, where she faced, uh, to me, unfathomable amount of resistance in publishing her poetry and being respected for the poet that she is. Um, whereas, I guess, uh, commercial and publishing attention has turned now towards uh, Indigenous peoples and poetry in particular as a source for Indigenous literature. Um, and that's because of the long fight um, mm. that people like Audrey Nunakol uh, and Melissa Lukashenko have kind of pushed through. Um, but it's also, I think, um, because of a shift in the way that Indigenous poetry is treated um, and, and it's resisted in different ways. So it's resisted uh, much more surreptitiously now it doesn't definitely doesn't have a clear path, but mm. uh, we face different hurdles, different um, difficulties in being taken seriously. I suppose just on that, what what do you feel like are the current difficulties in in being taken seriously? Well, the interest in Indigenous poetry and literature is um, is quite shallow. It's a, almost a preoccupation with the poets rather than the poems, if that mm. makes sense. So, um, Indigenous peoples are read, marketed and promoted um, in in some ways uh, with really, I guess, shallow interpretations of their work at best and sometimes patronising at worst. Um, it's featured in some of the essays that uh, accompany the poems in this book, um, talking about how Indigenous poetry has responded to how it's not all is seen fully for the complex and nuanced messaging that it contains. Um, and also that um, meaning is projected onto it um, by settler readerships who are kind of interested in engaging with Indigenous literature as a way of establishing their own uh, identity uh, or um, persona in relation to the work. Yeah, I can, I can definitely understand what you're saying. And I feel like there are quite a few poems in here that are speaking back to a misinformed uh, narrative that has been placed on so many First Nations people, um, you know, through colonisation and has been continually wrongly written. I'm wondering if we can talk a little bit about, I suppose, the structure of the way that the anthology is is set up. Um, it's broken into um, different sections, each being introduced by um, uh, incredible writer and thinker, First Nations thinker. We've got Uncle Bruce Pascoe, um, Ali Kobe Eckerman, just to, to name a few. Can you can you talk to us a little bit about about these essays and what that process was like of picking those writers? Um, I tried to bring of the 53 poems together, bring them into groups where the poems almost had conversations with one another so that they could um, bring a unified but not uniform uh, perspective on one particular way of thinking or one particular style or one particular moment in time. Um, and then I invited these five writers, Ali Kobiakaman, Bruce Pascoe, Chelsea Bond, Evelyn Araluen and Stephen 
and Oliver, uh, to yarn um, about the poems that they were assigned, this little cohort of 10 or so poems, um, in part to demonstrate the enduring relevance of First Nations verse to First Nations communities, not just um, poetry communities, not just literary communities, but actually the enduring relevance of First Nations poetry to almost all of Black public life as we know it today. And it was fantastic to see kind of this really pluralistic body of knowledge develop around um, the poems. Uh, the essays were invited because, firstly, they deserve to be there. They're all fantastic uh, writers and thinkers in their own right who all had something to bring to bear on the poems. Um, but also because in the Western model of bringing together anthologies like this, the editor um, is treated as kind of having a, a singular authority on what the poems mean or what poems deserve to, to be in an uh, anthology like this. Um, and it seemed contrary to the spirit of the poems that had their own collaborative uh, and interresponsible meaning to one another um, for any one person to have kind of an authority to guide the reader through them. So in creating kind of a, a plurality of uh, perspectives and opinions on these poems, we could really demonstrate just how wide-reaching their impact was, um, but also how granular uh, and personal um, the impact is on First Nations individuals. Yeah, I love how it really centres uh, collectivity and, and exactly what you said, kind of smashing that hierarchy of what it means to be an editor and I suppose less being a top-down approach but more of a, a collaboration. Yeah, and I mean, who am I to say what these poems are and what these poems mean? Um, if there was all the time in the world um, and if I had my way again, I guess um, I would move towards a more collective model of editing something like this. Um, that's a lesson learned, I think, from this collection is that um, that hierarchy is still present in uh, the curation and selection of the works. Um, and that's one of the limitations, I'll, I'll admit, of Firefront is that um, it is uh, limited by what appears on the page and what can be put on the page. Um, and as some of the essays go to outline, First Nations poetry is so much more diverse and rich um, than just published page poetry mm -hmm. and even more diverse and rich than spoken word poetry or rap. There's just so much happening out there that's often and strategically not public facing. Yeah, I love that you've used um, incredible musicians as well. You know, they're storytellers in, I suppose, a different way. Archie mm. Roach, Briggs, you've got Baker Boy. Can you tell me a little bit about, yeah, you're thinking about including um, those incredible musicians in this anthology? Yeah, I see a relationship between rap and spoken word poetry. And I also see a relationship between song lyricism and poetic lyricism. So if I'm thinking back to um, Mob, uh, especially Uncle Archie Roach, who are influencing in a meaningful and once in a generation kind of way, influencing how people um, lyricize, how people represent themselves on the page, that is for me, a poetic influence that deserves to be uh, acknowledged. Um, and the poetry of Uncle Archie Roach's, Roach's lyrics, I think, continues to have uh, intergenerational significance, particularly in how people uh, extrapolate in poetry 
uh, individual to collective experiences and mm. back again. Alison Whitaker, you're obviously a poet yourself. I'm wondering if you are happy to, to read the poem that you have in this anthology, Many Girls, White Linen. Yeah, of course. Many Girls, White Linen. No mist. No mystery, no hanging rock only. Many girls, white linen, men with guns and harsher things, white women amongst gums, white linen, starcher things. Later plaques will mark this war. Nails peeling back, floor scrubbing back, black chores, white lux, hangnails, hanging, more than nails while no palm growing paler. Later, plaques will mark this sick linens, rotten cotton jeans. Later, plaques will track the try to bleed lineage dry. Its banks now flood. A new ancestor ordeal plats this our blood. If evil is banal, how more boring is suffering evil two bloodlines from it? How more raw rousing, horrifying is the plaque that marks something else rolling on from this place, a roll of more white linen, dropped on sight incline amongst gums collecting grit, where black girls hang nails, hang out, picking them hang nails. It's Alison Whitaker reading Many Girls White Linen, uh, this one taken from Firefront First Nations Poetry and Power Today, as edited by Alison Whitaker. Alison, I'm wondering if you can talk to me a little bit about, I suppose, what it's like if your your first kind of primary arts practice is poetry, what it's like to to work as an editor, to work with other people's words. You know, is that kind of one in the same for you or, or how do you see that relationship? Yeah, that's a great question. And I feel like it's maybe not one I'm equipped to answer because um, in the editing of this collection, I was looking at poetry that had already been totally honed for publication, whatever publication meant for that particular poem. So I was looking at works that were already uh, fully polished out there in a published form. Um, And so I think my, my job is better described as a curator. But the curation process was really interesting, I suppose. I had to um, try really hard to find uh, poetry books that were published by really small uh, outlets or that outlets that no longer existed and had to scour through um, archives and libraries and just sitting for a little while uh, and absorbing fully the the depth, the power and the diversity of Indigenous verse, not just what's happened recently, but in publications over time, was such a um, humbling experience. Um, I think it does us well um, as poets and as First Nations people to sit quietly every now and then and observe the work of the people who have done so much to get us to this place and whose work goes on to influence your own, um, I think, in ways that are not always um, noticeable or visible because their work is first mediated by uh, black public and then transferred back to you. Um, So it's good to be able to, I think, attribute that work to the people who deserve the credit. Mm. 
Alice, in this anthology was created um, over the summer just gone. It, it was a time of, you know, some of the worst bushfires that this country has seen. And, you know, it's a it's a, a collection that's never felt more relevant. Can you tell me about how that kind of context has informed the creation of this anthology? So we had named this collection Firefront um, a little while before the summer of catastrophic bushfires that we just experienced. And it was named Firefront to indicate that cycle of destruction of the colony, regeneration and growth of one another that we see um, amongst ourselves as First Nations poets. So that dual focus that First Nations poetry has that's really powerful to um, take something down that destroys us and to build something else in its place um, across in a horizontal way with one another. Um, of course, in the intervening period, um, we saw just what's at stake in that process for First Nations people, that um, when country is not managed by the people to whom it belongs and who belong to it, then we see catastrophic destruction and when um, First Nations peoples globally are not uh, trusted in their desire to not have fossil fuels degrade their climate, we see, again, kind of this accumulating sense of destruction. So I see Firefront, as in this collection, being a testimony to what First Nations peoples are doing on this continent, but also what we stand to lose and why we're doing this poetry so purposefully. Mm. Uh, Alison Whitaker, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me, Beth. That was Alison Whitaker there speaking all about Firefront, First Nations Poetry and Powers Today. It is out now through UQP and it's a collection that really showcases um, so many well-respected First Nations uh, poets and writers that you would know and then also some incredible rising stars. I highly recommend uh, picking up a copy. You're on Triple R. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. You're in Triple R in the Glass House. My name is Beth AQ. And last night, the Emerging Writers Festival launched their 2020 program via a digital launch uh, aired in partnership with the Wheeler Centre called Digital Nostalgia. And artistic director Ruby Rose Pivot Marsh joins me now to talk about their program for the festival, which will run completely online from June 16th to the 23rd. Thanks so much uh, for your time, Ruby. Yeah, thanks for having me there. Um, firstly, congratulations on the program launch. It was um, absolutely amazing to watch and, yeah, just such a good job. Um, Thank you. So, you know, firstly, we spoke a couple of months ago when you had just announced the decision to go completely online and last night during the launch you said that, you know, this festival was kind of like turning a ship around halfway through its course. Mm. Can you talk to us a little bit about that, the impact of, um, of COVID and, and what it's meant for you to, to go online? Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, it, it was funny because that was just like it. Um, I know it's like a common analogy, but that was legitimately what it felt like. Mm. Um, you know, just that it was this huge thing that we kind of 
had to just change direction on completely. Um, I don't know. It was weird because it was, like, a a very clear choice. Um, Like, I don't think we really ever thought that, you know, there was another option. Um, But, you know, things like we're a tiny team, um, being apart from one another is kind of quite difficult in terms of, you know, getting work done, but also, like, social isolation isn't easy and um, we're quite a social... (laughs) like group of people um, with each other and then also people so EWS is is a development organisation everyone's sort of learning their roles as they're doing them so it's a lot harder to do when you're apart but I think given the circumstances we've all done a pretty good job like I know that sounds really strange but yeah it's just it's been really wonderful to sort of make that decision make that move and go with it and just everyone that we work with uh like in EWF our staff have all been really just incredible in making that switch and just enthusiastic and I think that speaks to the whole community that EWF has which is just people who are really passionate about the festival yeah and you should be proud it looks you know really incredible and it's under exceptional circumstances that you've you've put together this uh this program with with the team so yeah I really applaud you I'm I'm interested uh, I suppose being able to kind of uh go through the program last night there there's so many amazing things in there uh mm-hmm. what kind of you know ideas or, or ways of thinking kind of in, informed the curation of the program this year yeah it's interesting because obviously um you know partway through you know the previous year is when a festival starts being planned. Um, and so there was a lot of work already put into the program, but then everything changed. And basically we started from scratch with the program again. Uh, there are a few things that we were able to transition over to digital with quite a bit of ease, but, you know, there were things like um, some of the performance events had like, changed drastically or um, in postponed until next year or, or, you know, whenever we're back (laughs) at, you know, a lot having live events, IRL events. Um, So I guess, yeah, the the thinking behind a lot of the events were what what are things that we think will bring people a little bit of joy um, and a sense of connection and community and also reflection and uh you know things to sort of to think about and learn and which voices are the ones that need to be uh elevated and put you know forward above others Mm. um I think that that's been really important always especially for EWS in terms of platforming traditionally marginalized voices and, and people and artists but especially this year, um, considering, you know, people have lost work and and lost sort of even just those very sort of things that I guess maybe sometimes when I think about like social connections and things like that are actually really important. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. It also seems like there's a lot of the program that is interested in not only being mediated by online platforms, but also kind of exploring what it means to write in a digital space and what it means to yeah. exist online as a writer. Can you tell us a little bit mm-hmm. more about, about these ideas? Yeah, um, so this is something that we've been sort of ex- like thinking about, you know, 
in terms of having run DW Digital Writers Festival before. Um, and I think it's funny, digital storytelling is really interesting and exciting. It's also really accessible. Um, and, and to me, one of the really important things was making sure that this festival was accessible. And I don't just mean in terms of like platforms and all that sort of stuff, but in terms of the language that we use when we talk about storytelling, I think can sometimes be a barrier for, you know, like sometimes I, I remember growing up, I would look at um, events and be like, I don't know what this word means, <laughs> you know? And I think that that, that was equally important, uh, equally as important as moving online. Um, but yeah, I think play is really important when it comes to storytelling and that's something that we encourage our audience and our artists to do. Um, and I think as well, the idea of being a writer in an online space can be a bit intimidating. Um, you know, I think often people assume maybe they need to be a coder or things like that. And what we are kind of trying to do is show that no, you don't have to know all these like very, you don't have to have all these very specific skills. If you have a story or if you write, you know, in a, a journal or whatever, you're a writer. And so why shouldn't digital writing also be something that you can explore? Mm, yeah, there's so many... Uh really interesting events that I'm so excited to attend. I was trying to like earmark them all in my diary, but then it just got wild. It's just the whole thing's highlighted. <laughs> I just, um, I can't believe that we actually have that many events, to be honest. Like it's, it's, I was looking at the page at the program once it was all live and I was like, Oh, that's a lot. And I'm really excited. Mm. There's so many yeah. like old favorites, like amazing babes, which I feel like mm. I've attended for the last couple of years. And there's the national writers mm. conference, but also there's new ones like, uh, the brand new digital publication. Can you tell us a little bit yeah. about that? Yeah. Um, so that was kind of something that we had, I mean, when I say we, I mean, I had been thinking about it in my brain and been a bit unsure about whether it was something we could do, um, last year. And then it was kind of like we went online and we were like, well, we have we have this opportunity to give people a chance to publish their work, um, you know, and not just perform at an event, but like it all stay there on the website. And so I think the publication just kind of made sense. Um, we have a lot of artists who apply and we can't necessarily run events for everyone either, which um, sucks, especially online. It, it's logistically a bit harder to sort of run events at the same time um, as we might normally during an IRL festival. But also, um, yeah, it, it was it just kind of made sense. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and we wanted to partner. We also wanted to just sort of acknowledge that there are so many amazing digital journals, especially in Australian literature, um, and we wanted to really highlight some of them, especially the ones that maybe don't get as much um, recognition or space, and then work in that sense um, collaboratively. I think that was key to that project. Yeah, it's really exciting. You know, as you said, it's you've got Jed Press, uh, Law Journal, mm -hmm. Mascara, Literary Review, Peril, Running Dog. Uh, yeah, just all kind of collectives and... and literature initiatives that are doing really interesting things and it's I'm, I'm yeah. really excited to to see what that looks like 
I, yeah. I'm interested as well, you know, you know, I've seen that you're going to be using a platform called Discord as a way to kind of retain that sense of community for festival goers. Can you tell us a little bit more yep. about, yeah, what that is and, and how that will work? Yeah, for sure. Um, so we started using Discord last year for the Digital Writers Festival um, because we, so, and it kind of, it's interesting, it kind of comes back to, you know, moving online, working from home. We, like many other organisations, use Slack to communicate with each other. We use it not only when we're in the office or, like, in this circumstance of working from home, but we also use it, like, when the festival's running because it's a lot easier for us to communicate to each other than, you know, calling or texting um, or emails especially. Um, so we were kind of, we were like, this is a really important part of our socialisation within the festival. Um, and we do things like we have a little channel where we share cool digital stuff. And so that was something that we really enjoyed. And we were like, well, this is kind of something that we should encourage audience members to engage with. And it was kind of like, essentially, we, I, I remember last year, I was like, well, we could use Discord because it's a gaming platform. Um, so, you know, it has all the capabilities of Slack, but it's a little bit, I think people are a bit um, more aware of it. Mm. Um, and it's, and it's um, a desk, it can be a desktop app or it can be just like an in-browser app. Um, so we put out a tweet last year being like, hey, these are the three platforms we are considering for DWF for audience um, participation, which one are people most interested in or almost familiar with? And Discord was, like, the, the one that came back as the number one. So that's quite literally that's what happened. We asked our audience what they wanted, and they were like, yeah, Discord. Mm. <laughs> and we were like, okay, done. done. I love that. Yeah. I love that collaborative approach really, to it. Yeah, it was just – it was really beautiful, actually, during DWS, like how many people were sort of there every day checking in, doing writing challenges or just, like, saying hi. And I think we – that's something, while it's amazing having a digital festival and we're really lucky and excited that we get to, um, one thing that is missing is the opportunity for artists and audience members to interact with each other in, an online, in a real-life space. So mm. I think Discord is one way that we can sort of encourage that interaction a little bit. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, I'm really interested when you do a festival completely online, how you go about making those decisions about what, online platforms you use because I suppose yeah. it's, it's never been yeah more important to, to think about that it, it, were there how were the decisions made in terms of yeah what platforms you would use to it, yeah for people to access the festival this year yeah um so there are a few different sort of I guess criteria or things that we considered so in the past we've used some of the platforms that we're using like StreamYard which is um a YouTube uh platform in that you can set it up in the back end and then it goes streams live to YouTube. Um, so that was a no-brainer. We, we were like, yeah, we'll use that again. Um, Zoom is one that we shifted to this year from a previous platform because of just the fact that people were much more familiar with it than platforms we've used in the past because of um, COVID and people using it for work and people using it for social um, interactions, things like that. So that was kind of why we decided to do that. But it's also it was also on sort of the um, advice of, like, our program advisory committee about what platforms were sort of more accessible for people. Um, so those are kind of the criteria, like, what's free as well. We don't want people to be, like, paying to download something to access our events when it 
especially for meant to be free events. Mm. Um, so what's free for people to use? What's easy for people to use? What has the capabilities that we want, like sharing screens, sharing documents, um, being able to interact with audiences and things like that. Um, so these are kinds of the things that we take into consideration. But it's also when it comes to programming, um, like how I said, we kind of we already had a program and then we had to move things online. So some of our projects were originally live performances. Like Playlist Joy was originally going to be a performance event. And we just thought that it would be much nicer as a, as a project that people could go back and read and it would just have it would just be much nicer in an online space as a as a piece of written work mm. um, rather than a live stream. So those are also things that we consider. Like what works in an IRL space might not necessarily work exactly the same way in a URL space. It's not just necessarily a matter of, well we'll live stream something. It doesn't always work that way. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, Ruby, just before I, I let you go, um, I, I think the term emerging uh, gets kind of thrown around a lot and I'm interested, you know, when, when you speak of emerging writers, when we speak about the Emerging Writers Festival, what does this yeah. mean um, to you, this term, and it, particularly in reference to this year's program and who it's for? Yeah, it's funny. Um, I think a lot of people have assumptions about what it means to be emerging, um, whether it's age or... Uh, sort of status experience all that sort of stuff and I do think that there are a lot of artists who are sort of always emerging because you can be an established artist in one practice and be emerging in another um, so to me an emerging writer is someone who's a writer who maybe hasn't had platform before or hasn't had a chance to interact with a community of writers before mm. um, or is just figuring out that that's something that exists. I know I didn't know that a community of writers was a thing because writing such a solo pursuit so much of the time, um, especially outside of things like universities and school. Um, yeah, so it, it's funny. I think that there's no right way to be an emerging writer or artist. Um, yeah, mm -hmm. I don't really know if that answers the question, yeah. but it's something to think about. Absolutely. And it, yeah. Yeah, I love that. And I think that you can be an emerging artist at any age across any discipline. And yeah, there's always kind of yeah. room to, to, to test that. Um, Ruby, yeah, and we have an open call out for that reason. Like yeah. we don't, yeah, that's why we encourage people to apply and people can self-nominate as to whether they're an emerging mm. or established or mid-career artist. Mm. Ruby, thank yeah. you so much for your time uh, this afternoon. Thanks for having me and, again. Yeah, a massive uh, congrats <laughs> on an excellent program. Thanks so much, Ed. Uh, it was Ruby Rose Pivot Marsh there, the Emerging Writers Festival Artistic Director, speaking about their 2020 program. You can check it out online if you just head over to emergingwritersfestival.org.au. It is going to be running entirely online from June 16 to June 23. This is Beth AQ. Thanks for listening to the podcast of The Glass House, a weekly radio show that airs on Triple R each Wednesday. We hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch via Twitter at BethanyAQ or the Triple R website.